I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. As we've gone through the book of Acts, the record of the early days of the church, one thing in particular has stood out to me, and that is that Jesus didn't do things the way we would have. When Jesus wanted someone to preach the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, who would have expected him to choose someone who had denied that he even knew him 50 days earlier? And when Jesus wanted to reach the Ethiopian eunuch out in the desert in Acts chapter 8, who would have expected him to choose someone who was already busy doing more than anyone else? And when Jesus wanted someone to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, who would have expected him to choose his worst enemy? And yet that's exactly what he did. And we have the record of how that happened in Acts chapter 9. This is the description of how Saul was turned from a persecutor into a preacher. From a Pharisee standing on the law to a sinner standing in grace. From a Hebrew of Hebrews to an apostle of the Gentiles. And Paul's conversion and his early attempts at ministry are recorded in the first 31 verses. To help us categorize our thoughts, I want to divide this passage into four parts. Four meetings that Saul had that changed his life and redefined his future. We'll look at the first two this morning. The first is that Saul met Jesus in verses 1 to 9. Verse 1 begins, Now Saul. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 8, it began with the description of the attitude and activity of Saul. Since then, Luke has followed Philip north to Samaria, south to Gaza, west along the coast to Caesarea, and now he checks back in with Saul, and nothing has changed. Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Killing Christians was not a passing fancy for Paul. Luke says he was breathing threats and murder. Now, breathing is the most basic activity of life. You don't have to think about breathing. You don't have to say, got to keep breathing. It's very natural. It's instinctive. And here Luke associates breathing with Saul's obsession. It was what he lived for. Having a conversation with Saul would not be a whole lot of fun. Because every time you said, what's up? He would be talking about killing Christians. He inhaled and exhaled threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, notice his target in verse 1. It's the disciples of the Lord. That's not a reference to the twelve disciples. It's a reference to all believers. Oftentimes we think Christians are at one level and disciples are at another level. But it's interesting in the book of Acts that Disciples are not even called Christians until chapter 11. We are all disciples. Now, in fact, I, I looked up the word Christian in the New Testament and I found, interestingly enough, that that word is only used three times in the New Testament. More commonly, we are called disciples as we are throughout the book of Acts. And Saul is committed to wiping them out. 
And so after he had gone from house to house throughout Jerusalem, dragging Christians to prison, after he had gone throughout Judea and Samaria, verse 1 goes on to say, he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Damascus was the capital of Syria. It had a large Jewish population with an estimated 30 to 40 synagogues. And since the heads of those synagogues didn't know who Saul was, he got letters from the high priest so that he would have authority to arrest these Christians and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And if you notice verse 2, it refers to any belonging to the way. And that expression, the way, is apparently the earliest name for the Christian movement. It's used that way six times in the book of Acts, probably derived from Jesus' statement when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's really a fitting name because Christianity is more than a belief system. It's more than a set of opinions. It's more than a set of doctrines. It is a way of life. And Saul is, committing, uh, is committed to putting an end to the way. In fact, notice how devoted he is to his cause. It doesn't say that the high priest came up with this idea and recruited Saul. It says that Saul came up with the idea and went to the high priest. He initiated it. And Damascus was not simply an afternoon's journey away. It was 130 miles northeast of Jerusalem, which would take at least six days to travel there. And, Saul, and so Saul would go anywhere and do anything to wipe out Christianity. He was Jesus' worst enemy. You say, well, why was he so angry at the believers? Why was he so adamant about this thing? Well, from Saul's perspective, Christianity was a false cult. Christianity was a threat to the Judaism that Saul loved. And so from his perspective, he was actually serving God by killing Christians. Which is not unusual because if you look back over history, you'll find that most of the persecution against the church came from people who did so in the name of God. And then verse 3 tells us, and it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul drew close to Damascus, he's probably getting his letters ready. He's probably salivating at the anticipation of more Christian bloodshed, and suddenly a light shines upon him. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 6, we're told that this happened about noontime. In Acts 26, 13, we're told that the light was brighter than the sun, and it certainly got Saul's attention because we're told here that he falls to the ground. Charles Spurgeon says God knocked him off his high horse. Saul, who had been breathing threats and murder, is now probably just happy to be breathing. His emotions have certainly switched from fury to fear. And though we're not told specifically in these verses, Saul actually saw more than just a light. He saw the Lord. Verse 17 of our chapter, Ananias says that the Lord Jesus appeared to him. In verse 27 of this chapter, Barnabas says that he had seen the Lord. 
And when Saul describes this incident in his testimony in chapter 22 and chapter 26, he tells us there that he saw the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when, when Paul gives us a list of the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, he says, and last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. When? On the Damascus road. You know, it's interesting to me that the last person that Jesus appeared to prior to Saul was Stephen. When Stephen was being stoned, he looked into heaven and saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Who would have guessed that Saul, at whose feet they laid their coats when they stoned Stephen to death, would be the next one that Jesus would appear to? Saul is on the ground, and from his position on the ground, he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, it's funny how a question can often say more than a statement. And that's certainly true here because this question is loaded. And let me just suggest four things that we find in this question. Number one, it tells us about a connection. Saul is killing and dragging Christians to prison. You would expect Jesus to say, why are you persecuting my people? But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because you see, the church is his body. And we are inseparably linked to him. And so when someone persecutes us, the body, they are persecuting him. There's a connection there. And then secondly, I see here compassion. You never find Jesus asking this kind of question when he was here on earth being persecuted himself. In fact, if you go back into chapter 8 and verse 32, it's interesting that the Ethiopian eunuch has just been reading there, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. Jesus suffered persecution silently. But now when he's in heaven, and the persecution is coming against his people, in the case of Stephen, he stands up, and here he speaks up. Compassion for his people third thing I see in this question is conviction. It's a safe bet that when God repeats your name twice, you're probably in trouble. In Luke 10, 41, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. In Luke 22, 31, He said, Simon, Simon. In Matthew 23, 37, He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's also a safe bet that when God stops you in the middle of something and asks you why you're doing it, you're probably in trouble. And see, that's the whole point of this question. It's to show Saul that he's in trouble. That he's not just persecuting men, he's persecuting God. And so this question is designed to bring conviction. And then a fourth thing that I think this question brought is confusion. This question must have thoroughly confused Saul. He's going to Damascus thinking that he's pleasing God, and suddenly he's being rebuked by God. He's going to Damascus thinking that he's serving God, and he finds out that instead he's fighting God. And Saul must have been filled with confusion. And out of that confusion, he asks a question of his own in verse 5. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? 
Now be careful that you understand what he's asking here. He's not saying, are you the Lord? He knows it's the Lord. The light comes out of heaven. He sees Him in His glory. He hears His voice. He knows it's the Lord. But the question is, who are you, Lord? You see, Saul is saying, I thought I knew you. I thought I was serving you. I thought I was pleasing you. But you're telling me that I'm persecuting you, so apparently I don't even know you at all. Who are you, Lord? And then he gets the answer that shook his world in verse 5. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul was convinced that Jesus was dead and buried in a Judean tomb. He was convinced that the leader of this sect had already been destroyed and all he had to do was destroy all the followers and that would be the end of the way. But now, surprise, surprise, he's having a conversation with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he sees Him in all His glory at the right hand of the Father, and he's confronted with the truth that Jesus is Lord. And it changed the entire direction of his life. And out of this situation, Saul asks a question. It's not really recorded here, but it is recorded in Acts chapter 22 and verse 10 when Paul gives his testimony about this event. He tells us that at this point in time, he asked this question, What shall I do, Lord? And I believe that that is the question that expresses the reality of true conversion. When he understands that Jesus is Lord, Saul is no longer giving the orders. Saul is no longer going according to his plans. He is now surrendering himself to the direction of the Lord. And I believe that the two questions that Saul asked are the more, most important questions a person can ask. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? A recent Gallup survey asked people to choose the questions they would most like to ask God. Here were the top five responses. Will there ever be lasting world peace? How can I be a better person? What does the future hold for me and my family? Will there ever be a cure for all diseases? And why is there suffering in the world? Interestingly enough, the answers to all of those questions are in the Scripture. But those are not the most important questions to ask God. Saul asked the most important question. Number one, who are you, Lord? I hear a lot of people telling other people who God is and all about Him and what He thinks and what He does and why He does it. But I wonder if people ever get to the point where they honestly come to the Lord and ask Him, who are you, Lord? And of course, the answer is in Jesus. He is God manifest in the flesh. He shows us exactly who God is. And then the second question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's the one most of us choke on. We want our Christianity to be cerebral. We, we want to talk about it and debate it, but we don't ever want to get to the point where we say personally to the Lord, what do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? 
You're Jesus. Lord, what do you want me to do? Two most important questions a person can ask. And Saul asks that second question, and he gets his answer in verse 6. But arise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Jesus responds to Saul's question by telling him only what to do first. Don't you find that that's the way God directs our life? He doesn't normally give us the big overall game plan. He gives us direction a step at a time. He says, you go into the city and then I'll tell you what to do next. That's the direction of the Lord. And then verse 7 says, And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Acts 26.14 tells us the men with Saul also fell to the ground. Acts 22.9 tells us they also saw the light, but they didn't see Jesus. And here we're told that they heard the voice, but Acts 22.9 tells us they didn't understand it. In John chapter 12 and verse 29, the Father spoke to Jesus out of heaven. And the multitudes spoke to one another and said, Did you hear it thunder? That's probably what occurred here. Other people heard something. They couldn't make out what it was. Saul heard the words because Jesus was speaking to him. And then verse 8 tells us, And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Saul's entry into Damascus wasn't quite what he anticipated. Instead of barging in as a hero, he entered helpless and blind and led by the hand. He is the picture of a broken man. And then verse 9 tells us, And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul was so impacted by this experience, he was unable to eat or drink for three days. He just sat in a blind silence. And I'm sure all the, all the while he was challenging his previous ideas about who God is and what pleases God. In fact, I think those three days were really symbolic in the life of Paul because in a sense those were three days when he died to himself and then three days later he would rise to new life. The first meeting that Saul had was with Jesus Christ. Now before we move on from this point, let me just point out a couple of lessons that are clear here. Number one is the sovereignty of God. This is clear as a bell. Saul was not a seeker. He was not looking for Jesus. He was looking to eradicate Jesus. Getting saved was the last thing on Saul's mind when he got saved. Which underlines for us what? The sovereignty of God. God chose him. God shined the light out of heaven. God revealed himself to him. God spoke to him. God broke him. And Saul sat around for three days going, wow. This was the work of God. Thirty years later in Philippians 3.12, Paul describes his conversion in these words. He says... I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. I like that. I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Saul was out to arrest others. 
Instead, Jesus arrested him. Let me give you a second lesson here. Maybe it's not so obvious. But that is the place. This occurred outside the borders of Israel. I think that's significant because God could have shined the light on Saul at any time in Jerusalem. He could have done it in Judea or Samaria. But verse 3 says, it happened as he was approaching Damascus. That means he was close to Damascus, which would put him in Syria. Why did God bring Saul to him outside the nation of Israel? Well, I think that's symbolic as well. Because he was going to be called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Second meeting that Saul had is that Saul met Ananias. And that's in verses 10 to 19. Notice verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. Now as far as we know, there wasn't anything special about Ananias. He was not a very prominent Christian. In fact, if it weren't for the conversion of Saul, we probably never would have read about him in the book of Acts. In fact, verse 10 just tells us he was a certain disciple. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't an evangelist. You say, well, then why did God choose to use Ananias? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, if Paul had been ministered to by an apostle or a prominent person, people might say Paul received his gospel from man rather than from Jesus Christ. But Paul is very clear in Galatians chapter 1 to tell us that that did not occur. He got his gospel from the Lord Jesus. And secondly, the thing that God is looking for in people is not fame, it's faithfulness. And that certainly describes Ananias. When God called him in verse 10, his response was, Behold, here am I. And that's what God is looking for. Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. The Lord gives him his assignment. Go to the street called Straight, go to Judas's house, find Saul of Tarsus. Now that's the last assignment that Ananias wanted to hear. And the Lord understood that, and so what he does in telling Ananias to go is he gives him a little more information. He tells him three things. First of all, he tells him at the end of verse 11... For behold, he is praying. No longer is Saul praying on Christians. He is now praying to the Lord. Which tells us what he was also doing for these three days. He was fasting and he was praying. Now this is interesting because prior to this, Saul had never really prayed. He had said a lot of prayers. But he had never prayed through Jesus, the one mediator to God. He had never prayed in the name of Jesus. He had prayed like the Pharisee that Jesus described in Luke chapter 18, whose heart was full of of pride and who was really far from God. And so Paul had said a lot of prayers he had never prayed, and now he says he's praying. Second thing he tells Ananias about Saul is in verse 12. He says, And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Not only is he praying, but he's had a vision, and I told him in the vision that you're coming, so he's expecting you. This is not going to be a cold call. You're going to come, and he knows you're coming. Makes it a little easier. 
And then he gives him one final piece of information, and that's at the end of verse 12. He tells him he's blind. You're going to go lay hands on him, and he's going to get his sight back. And so the Lord says, I want you to go to Saul, but don't be afraid. He's praying, he's had a vision, and he's blind. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. Now the Christian grapevine was working pretty good in that day because the information about Saul had actually beaten him to Damascus. And so here we find Ananias praying one of those but Lord prayers. You ever pray those? The Lord tells you what to do. It's clear as a bell. And you say... Uh, God, have you heard the latest on this guy? Maybe you need a little more information before you tell me to go to Saul of Tarsus. Now, in fairness to Ananias, you have to understand that he saw this as a kamikaze trip. This was a suicide mission. And so he wants to double-check and make sure God's got everything square before he follows through. And I love what the Lord does in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. Don't you like that? But, 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 go. And then in his kindness, he gives him a little more information. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. This Saul that you're afraid of, I have chosen to be my vessel. And then he tells Ananias that Saul is going to do two things. Number one, he's going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's going to bear my name, first of all, to the Gentiles. And, and Saul would later say in Romans eleven thirteen that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He'll take my name before kings, and he did that before King Agrippa and probably Caesar himself. And then he will take my name before the sons of Israel. Of course, that's what Jesus mentions last, it's what Saul or Paul always wanted to put first. But you see, now he was submissive to the Lord. He will bear my name. Secondly, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He will bear my name. He will also suffer for my name. And no one probably in history suffered as much as the Apostle Paul, which is rather interesting. The one who brought so much suffering on the church before he was saved would now be the one who bore the greatest load after he was saved. And if you want some catalogs of his suffering, just read 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In fact, Saul wasn't going to have to wait very long to get started because right in this very chapter, we're going to have some descriptions of his initial sufferings and it didn't end for Saul until an axe severed his head from his body in the city of Rome. And so God tells this to Ananias. And when Ananias hears this, it kind of puts things in perspective for him, and he goes. Verse 17, And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias goes to the street called Straight, and I'm told that it runs east-west in Damascus and is still there today. 
He goes to the house of Judas. And I wish we were told more about Judas because I wonder whether he was a believer. And if he wasn't a believer, I wonder what he thought of what was going on in his house. You know, it's almost poetic irony that the first two people that the Lord brought to Saul after his conversion were two names that had already been tainted in the New Testament. Judas and Ananias. Ananias comes and he lays hands on Saul. Now the primary reason for that was because he was going to receive the Holy Spirit. But I think there's a secondary reason and that is you have to remember that Saul is blind at this point. So he can't see the love in Ananias' face but he can feel it being communicated through a touch. And then it's also communicated through his first words. He says, Brother Saul. Isn't that good? I wonder who that helped more, Ananias or Saul? Ananias might have come and said, uh, Brother? Brother Saul? But I'm sure when Saul heard that, it had to bring joy to the heart of this converted Pharisee. The name Ananias means the Lord is gracious. And that's exactly what Saul was getting at this point. He was getting the grace of God. And Ananias says, I've been sent by the Lord Jesus to give you back your sight and so that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. God had done a good job of breaking Saul. But God never breaks anyone to leave them empty. He breaks people so that He can then fill them with Himself. Verse 18, And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. Now Luke, you have to remember who's writing this, is a medical doctor. But he doesn't have any medical terms to describe what's going on here. He just says something like scales fell from his eyes, and he could see. There were no medical terms to describe this because this was a miracle. And the first thing that happened when Saul regained his sight and got up was that he got baptized. He hadn't eaten for three days, but eating was not his first priority. His first priority was to be baptized. And then verse 19 says, and he took food and was strengthened. Then he sat down at the table and then he ate with Ananias and the others. Don't you wish you could go back there and just kind of sneak into the table and sit down and listen to that conversation that went on between Saul at this early stage in his conversion and Ananias and the others? We're going to stop there this morning, but let me close with just a few more lessons that we learn here. Number one, God doesn't sugarcoat the gospel. Many people today seem to have the strategy that we, we don't want to tell unbelievers too much. We don't want to tell them that there may be a cost involved in serving the Lord. We just ought to tell them the glory and hide the suffering. You see, we might scare them off if we tell them too much. God apparently didn't have that strategy. Because in verse 16, he tells Ananias how much Saul is going to suffer for his namesake. And I'm certain that one of the first conversations Ananias had with Saul when they sat down at the table was, guess what the Lord told me? Guess what your future holds? 
It didn't scare off the apostle Paul. He was committed to the Lord. Second lesson. God's works are balanced. I think sometimes we only look for God in the Damascus Road encounters. We see while God was working through a great miracle on the Damascus Road, He was also working through a quiet meeting in the house of Judas. The light that outshined the sun, the appearance of Christ, the voice out of heaven was dramatic. The visit to the house of Judas was not very dramatic. But which one was God working through? He was working through both. The hand of God knocked Saul off his high horse, but God used the hand of man to bring him what he needed most. God spoke to Saul from heaven. He also spoke to Saul through the voice of an obedient follower. And I say that because I want us to understand that God works through both the ordinary and the extraordinary. And then a third and final lesson. Never underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. Peter was ministering to thousands in Jerusalem. Philip saw a great harvest among the Samaritan people. But Ananias was sent to only one man. But what a man he was. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle and influenced more people and nations for Christ than any man since. You're probably not familiar with Edward Kimball. On April 21st, 1855, he went down to the shoe store where one of the boys in his Sunday school class was working. And Edward Kimball was determined to share the gospel with him. When he got to the store, it was crowded and he started to have some second thoughts about whether he ought to go in and, and try this. And In fact, he tells us that he walked by the store once before he ever went in and then he finally just determined, I'm going in there. And so he went in and he found the 18-year-old Dwight in the back of the building wrapping up shoes. And he gave what he described afterwards as a weak plea for Christ. And in the back of that shoe store in Boston that young man gave his life to Jesus Christ. That young man was Dwight L. Moody, who would become the leading evangelist of his day, bringing thousands to the Lord. Never underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. Like Edward Kimball and like Ananias before him, let's be faithful to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage that is so remarkable and shows us the transformation in the life of Saul. And Lord, as we read about it, we pray that our response today, if we're not believers, is to ask those same questions. Who are You, Lord? Show me who You are. And then, Lord, what do You want me to do? And for those who are here today as believers, who have maybe been defining our own plans. Father, we want to come back this morning and ask that question afresh. Lord, what, what do you want me to do? Lord, may we surrender to you so that you might use us powerfully. And Father, as we read this passage and realize the power that's in the gospel, I pray that we will be motivated to share it with those around us for your glory. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.